Hi, everyone. Today is October 10th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So today we have, uh, it's my pleasure to have Otavio Arancho. Who, hi. Hi. Who is professor of pathology and cell biology as uh, in, no, who is professor in the departments of pathology and cell biology as well as the department of medicine. Those are two departments. Yes. Right? At the Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's disease and the aging brain. Does that have an acronym? <laughs> no, Taub Institute. We Taub simplified Institute. by saying Taub Institute. At Columbia University's Irving Medical Center. His research concerns the mechanisms of learning and memory in normal and neurodegenerative states. During the last uh, decade or so, you pioneered the field of mechanisms of synaptic dysfunction that underlie memory loss and dementia and Alzheimer's disease, with, especially with an eye toward therapeutic strategies and drug discovery. So welcome. Thank you. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got George Perry. Hello. Hi, George. And we've got Yungan Lee. Hi. Hey. In general, Alzheimer's disease is, is, is typically couched in terms of structural things like cortical atrophy and synaptic loss, or these other structural features like plaques and tangles. And, and that's all sort of generally about the later stage of the disease discovered from postmortem. So your work is kind of more interested in the earlier stages, right? where these synaptic events trigger the actual process of memory loss or, or failure. And specifically, your lab has been looking at these soluble oligomeric proteins like amyloid, beta, and tau, and how they might actually interfere at the synapse in these mechanisms that cause plasticity and, and, and memory formation, um, short and long term, and, and specifically in the hippocampus. Tell us about how your ideas sort of connect to the current models of the idiopathogenesis of Alzheimer's. And, and how do you imagine, in terms of the therapeutic strategies that we, we've been working with now and testing now, like how these might inform sort of a, a new generation? What is your sort of grand vision? Okay, yes. What's the grand vision? The grand vision is that uh, uh, starts from the premises that uh, actually this uh, more than 100 clinical trials failed in the field of Alzheimer's disease, most of them going against the beta amyloid, but lately it's also possible that also tau therapy might fail. So starting from these premises, I've tried to understand, uh, try to rearrange the piece of the parts of the disease because I mean a lot of data have been published, a lot of things are known, but uh, still we are not able to put these things in the right place and uh, to solve this uh, devastating disorder, Alzheimer's disease. So I, um, in, the, in the early days, I thinking that uh, uh, the Okay. The most at, at the beginning, most of the therapeutics in this disease were trying to tackle beta amyloid. The idea was, since the beta amyloid is bad, I remove it and then I will solve the disease. And uh, because, uh, however, what we had found was that that uh, I never accepted the these, and I found the exaggerating simplistic as a possibility because. Uh, what we also, what I was observing was that uh, the case of beta amyloid, in addition of being toxic, also performed other physiological function, was also necessary for learning and memory, and therefore the consequence of that would have been in any drug 
lowering the level of beta amyloid instead of improving uh, the memory loss or being helpful. It would be just the opposite. Does that bear out in studies when you, if you completely knock out all amyloid, does it, you see memory deficits? Yes, that it's, uh, it depends how you perform your experiment, that comes quite often, yes, okay. if you ever, yeah, exactly. Okay. And um, so, uh, so the consequence of it is that these drugs will not help. So the idea of using drugs lowering a beta amyloid is not viable from a therapeutic point of view. But still being aware of the fact that uh, uh, beta amyloid in high amount uh, is toxic, the approach that we, we used initially for about uh, 8 to 10 years was to develop drugs that act at the downstream level of beta amyloid interfering with the negative effect of beta amyloid. And we tried to understand which pathways were uh, down-regulated or up-regulated, anyway, regulated poorly because of beta amyloid. And uh, spent a good amount of time in understanding which pathway were, and then develop, once I was uh, finding targets, trying to use the ones that were more viable from a drug discovery point of view to uh, develop drugs against this target. Knowing very well that, uh, um, you know, one thing is to understand the etiopathogenesis of the disease and a different story is to fight the drug against the disease because, uh, because not all targets are viable from a therapeutic point of view. Some are more <coughs> approachable than others. Does not mean it's not involving disease, but uh, if you, it could be complicating big factors. So there are viable target and not. So I was trying to find this viable target, and then uh, while I was working on uh, uh, the negative effect of uh, uh, the pathway, the downstream level of beta amyloid, I realized that uh, uh, also that beta amyloid was not the only protein that. Uh, was in soluble form uh, in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease, but also tau protein that initially everybody uh, was thinking that uh, it was playing a role from inside the cell in a very uh, fibrillar form, uh, would be that the toxic form of uh, protein. I realized that uh, there is also soluble form of this protein tau outside the cells, and uh, therefore, uh, those were the years in which pioneering, we were finding that uh, soluble tau oligomers were um, toxic to synaptic function and memory, and were causing just the same effect as beta amyloid. Uh, yes, this is, this, those were uh, these years, and uh, then after that, I've found that there are so many aspects in common, and that was intriguing me, beta amyloid and tau oligomers, I meant. And that has intrigued me so much, and I was trying to understand why these things like this. And there was one experiment that, for me, was very... Oh, it started opening me a totally new world, uh, which was the experiment in which, when I used low doses of beta amyloid, doses that, per se, were not capable of impairing memory or impairing synaptic functioning, and I paired it with low doses of... Uh, uh, soluble tau, oligomeric, oligomeric tau, also doses that per se were not capable of impairing the same thing, memory and LTP, uh, when memory and synaptic function. Uh, when I was putting the two things together, the combination of the two 
was uh, uh, was causing an impairment of memory as well as uh, plasticity, synaptic plasticity. So this um, this so are LTP studies and behavioral assay. LTP study and behavioral assay, memory assay, behavioral assay. So this for me told me, Ottavio, perhaps things are not like uh, you think because like uh, I was expecting they would have been because. He, the prevailing hypothesis in the field of Alzheimer's disease is that uh, first there is beta amyloid, and then after beta amyloid has uh, started, and uh, there is a lot of soluble oligomer in the blood or in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease. When there is a lot of these oligomers, um, the, then this beta amyloid will trigger tau. And uh, once tau is triggered, then this tau uh, spreads all over the brain and is responsible for all the sign of the disease and the, the full-blown disease. But uh, this, it, it, was not it, it was not easy to reconcile with the idea that two protein low amount, they are placed in series. It more uh, like uh, uh, was more, you know, matching with the possibility that the two proteins were in parallel. And uh, because of that, then I started all a series of other, of, other of other studies. And I can continue with this, but perhaps you have some question. I, don't, I can speak forever like this. Yeah, so, <laughs> so the one thing is, is, is these, oligo these soluble oligomers that are presumably being cleaved from the precursor protein. In the case of a beta cleaved, from tau, no, would tau. not be cleaved. Ah, so so the, what is the source of the tau soluble protein? It's tau protein, tau tau monomers that would oligomerize. Ah, okay. Tau would be released. What we also saw is that tau oligomers, tau actually tau, similar to a beta, is released from the cells upon activity into the outside. In monomer. In monomer, yes. And uh, when once it is out, then it can oligomerize. What's the mechanism for release? These are just, uh, they're like co-release. How, how do they get out of the cell? Is it just a transmembrane passage? What is the uh, idea? Well, for a beta, it's easier because uh, a beta, APP, the molecule makes a beta, is a transmembrane protein. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, it's cleaved by the two secretases. As soon as it's cleaved, some people think that it's cleaved already as oligomer because very often there are people who have seen that this APP themselves, they are like dimerized already in the membrane. So the, the secretases help during activity. Activity would trigger the secretase, the secretase would cleave APP, and the oligomer, according to this hypothesis, with some data to, to show it in support of that, that we make the oligomers. With tau, it's much more difficult because tau is a cytosolic protein, and uh, and so that was a, like something like going against the dogma. How can how is? But the fact is that it goes outside, and people have shown that if you block exocytosis, if you block endoxidosis, you block its release. So we do not know yet the mechanism. Your question is a very good one. We do not know yet the mechanism by which tau is released outside, but indeed it goes outside. And the people also have shown, have shown that this tau that is outside is not the consequence of cell death, because it would be another possibility. The cell dies, and therefore the tau that is not the cell goes outside. No. People have shown that without any cell death, there is 
upon activity, there is a release of tau outside cells. And so, so there is there is even there some probably lack of knowledge on basic mechanism of release. Uh, you know, and on the other end, the yeah. the seeding, this idea that these these soluble proteins then end up being taken up by other cells and, and spreading the, the pathogen, yes. the process. So if tau is being released like a paracrine yes. hormone, yes. then does it have some normal function as a sort of paracrine hormone? For sh as a paracrine, not that I know, zero, from the outside, but with the activity, the, the function of tau inside uh, the cell, microtubules, etc., that's well known. But as a consequence of this tau release outside, there is uh, no clue of what he could do. Just because, uh, just think about that uh, the idea there is tau outside, well, it's five years old, so we're really very much, uh, or maybe a little bit more than five years, but that's... But you've already seen effects of tau on synaptic transmission. Or on absolutely. Long -term we see that tau uh, reduces long-term potentiation at DP and reduces memory. So if it was released as a paracrine hormone, it would presumably been having effects like that, uh, effects on synaptic plasticity. It could, yes. Yeah. Could, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if in normal amount would have any effect right. whatsoever. These effects are obtained with high amount uh -huh. of... Uh, we don't know how much protein. is even normal. I mean, we don't have a measurement of what the normal amount no, is. No, we do we? have. There yeah. are estimates of ah. the normal... There are estimates of the normal amount of these proteins. In this moment, I don't remember the numbers. I know that it's toxic, uh, the, the, the toxicity is around 2.5 nanomolar of this tau. I think that uh, some people have estimated, and uh, was in the, in the, we're talking the picomolar range, much lower, but oh. the number are available there. On the so it's very small. I mean, that's very small. Yes, much more than that. And yeah. So there must be a very high affinity site that tau would normally associate with. There must be a very high affinity site. There, are the, there is another possibility to take into account, which is also in, in this field, is the fact that uh, there is also the possibility that tau in a beta are modified when they oligomerize. It's like they form new entities. And these new entities, they are both beta sheet proteins, and these new entities could uh, interact also with the same targets. So tau as a monomer could not have uh, a target, but the formation of the oligomers could have a binding site with uh, other uh, targets. And also could that be a binding site for tau amyloid beta copolymers too? They do mix the, yes, absolutely. There is the cross-seeding thing and then the mixed, uh, mixed oligomer. Yeah, that's another, uh, it exists. So, and we don't know what they are, what they are there for. And <clears throat> even we're discussing earlier today. Do those occur in normal people also, young people, or only during Alzheimer's disease? I am sure it occurs also young people. I don't know in the amount of, I don't know that, but, well, I'm sure, I bet, I should say to be precise, sure until when you don't demonstrate it. Why not, I would say. I mean, the primary procumbent neurons are, uh, uh, they come from animals. Uh, culture primary procumbent neurons come from animals. You put in culture, the culture is 10 days old, and then you study and you see release of tau. So why not? Uh, in the same thing would occur young people. Uh, yeah, why, I would say why not? Why not? For sure, uh, one uh, in, you take the cerebrospinal fluid of uh, 
uh, healthy individual, not young, by certain age, and compare with the tau, the tau of uh, people with Alzheimer's disease, then you see difference in the you see in both first of all you see release of tau in both healthy controls and the D. and then when you compare the level of the various molecular weight to which this composition of tau form migrate you see differences between the two with the prevalence of high molecular weight from present oligomers in the ad cerebrospinal fluid and instead, in certain molecular weight of uh, uh, low molecular weight, below the molecular weight, so there are fragments of tau where uh, there is a decrease in people with Alzheimer's disease compared with the other. And I have uh, a, I published this figure in a review that last year in uh, June of Alzheimer's disease. So there is an exact distribution of what happened in the cerebrospinal fluid. And this was. I mean, there are other people saying, they did not analyze other people, did not analyze uh, uh, the distribution of virus molecular weight, but they do show that there is uh, tau outside the cerebrospinal fluid, both for normal individual and <coughs> AD patient. So yeah. is it, how, how do we connect this early phase of a loss of plasticity owing to these soluble proteins and then get to atrophied cell death? Because they're, they're, what, what, what do you imagine fills in the blank, the, what pathogenic process? Okay. Well, this is a very long question. That, oh, one, uh, that one could, uh, even should, uh, should, to which one should add? I do imagine that a broaden the normal performance and normal function that's necessary for learning and memory. And then from these, uh, it goes to be toxic to synaptoplastic. And then from going to be toxic to impair cellular messenger system, then you end up killing synapses. And then next step is to kill cells. And then there is the spreading and this is all. There are many, many steps in, uh, in uh, this chain of events. The, the things that uh, fascinate me the most is how, which is the question that uh, people do not like to answer in the field um, because probably it's complicated or because they're concentrated on uh, amyloid bed and tau. Uh, I don't know why, but in any way, it's uh, how it, you go from uh, what is upstream of the of the negative uh, function of beta amyloid or tau. What is upstream, and uh, there is a model that I would like to investigate, in which, for, starting from the observation that, okay, if you <coughs> have a very low amount of beta amyloid. The same concentration that are physiologic, not talking about nanomolar beta, which is toxic. If a very low amount of beta amyloid oligomers and you expose a synapse to prolong, for a prolonged period of time to this um, low level of physiologic level of beta amyloid, eventually what you see is that the synapse starts to be uh, re releasing a lot of transmitter, the so-called spontaneous release of neurotransmitter, miniature release of neurotransmitter, is increased. Just like a certain toxin that when you give uh, the cell before dying, uh, start releasing uh, a lot, and then eventually the cell dies. So the same thing is like the synapse is undergoes like a challenge for a continuous period of time, and responds to the challenge by releasing neurotransmitter. 
And, uh, and then the next step will be from an increased liver transmitter will be that start malfunctioning. What causes that? And uh, I would like to study, I've not studied yet, but some change in level of epigenetic changes that uh, are upstream of uh, uh, the, uh, this negative function. Upstream of when a beta is released in high amount, that my opinion very likely is some something modified at the level of epigenetics, so level of the nucleus, that then eventually affect the, the balance, the homeostasis of the synapses, and, and then, and then everything goes out of control, and the cell starts making. How do you get at those things that? epigenetic or other types of changes that we have no hint now what they are, except that they yeah. likely involve synapses. Well, uh, it's, this is just what I just came up with, with an hypothesis. So the epigenetic mechanism occurring in a cell are known, and uh, some more. It could be DNA, uh, post-relation modification of the DNA, methylation, whatever. could be changes occurring at histone level like uh, histonacetylation is one. Or I would, uh, the, the mechanism that uh, I would uh, in, like to investigate are mechanisms that need to become persistent. Because Alzheimer's disease is not something that you have and then it disappears. So once it's triggered, it needs to be something forever. So I, my idea, and what I would like to propose in a grant, I have, but it has not been funded, is uh, uh, for this look a lot of histone methylation. Histone methylation are modification, and once they occur, then uh, then they they are there. So it's very hard to remove them. There are mechanisms of demethylation. It's not so uh, stable like it was thought to be, but it tends to be much more stable than for instance histone acetylation, which goes back and forth uh, easily. So I need to have something that changes the synapse forever. Eastern methylation, but could be some other. There is microRNA, etc. There are yeah, many does other. Does it have to involve? This would happen during the aging process, correct? This would happen during the aging process. And would it affect every cell the same, of a certain type of cell? Not every cell the same, but cells that are more challenged during learning and memory should be more uh, more dependent upon activity. Should, would be more susceptible to this kind of insult. So that would say that insult would be the one that initiates these changes. Right. So that would be yeah. even more upstream. Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I think. Because if I remember uh, when you record from cells, the hippocampus is in uh, the area around the hippocampus are very much different than others. I, if you record, record from uh, uh, dopamine neuron, etc., they have much less activity in them. It's, you have a culture from uh, basal ganglia or whatever, you have much less of release than, uh, than what you see when I see with hippocampus. My problem with hippocampus is that uh, if I take a, make a primary hippocampal culture, is to keep them quiet. Because uh, they start, it's very easy. You don't do anything. You put in a dish, you take from the incubator, you put in the lab. They start being epileptic by themselves. So really, it's a tremendous, or spinal cord. And before we were using the hippocampus, it's a spinal cord. There is not that many events that you uh, occurring in normal conditions. It's really So this is why Dr. Wilson's studies dopamine cells are more quiescent. Yeah, but then they end up dying anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I... But I have a couple of questions. Maybe all of you guys know about more about Alzheimer's disease 
neuropathology than I do, but if, if we just look at the hippocampus or look at the cortex, uh, are cells being affected according to cell type or according to layer or according to like place in the circuit? Is there any pattern to any of that? Are there some cells that are more vulnerable than others? I was just thinking about when you were talking about it, like maybe tau is having its ill effect at synapses, at the axon terminals, which is a long, long way from the nucleus, and then something has to go all the way all out the way the axon. Yes. Or it could be going the other direction. In both directions, probably. And then... Yeah. The peripheral send the signal to the top, and the top try to fix the so problem some, at the some bottom. Axons have, some cells have axons that go a long way, and the synapses are a long way from the cell so bodies, and some have really close ones. What, uh, is there that any heterogeneity kind of, of cells, like if you're looking at tau, not every cell has this, if you look at a layer of cell, mm -hmm. some cells have tau, some don't. Yeah, but if I'm you just look at oxidative changes or mitochondrial changes, so for example, consistent. if we're interested in GABAergic inner neurons mm -hmm. versus glutamatergic projection mm -hmm. neurons in the hippocampus, are they equally affected? Well, especially since you mentioned an activity dependence, mm -hmm. right? So there would be a, presumably a difference depending on how. There, are, the there are much less studies in the hippocampus about GABAergic neuron with respect. Mm -hmm. Much more is an excited. But there are also studies showing that also GABAergic neurons are affected. It has been less pursued by scientists. But there are also studies showing also. Gong Gong did yeah. some studies at dealing with GABAergic neurons. Yeah, that's why we've been working on with Jenny Shui. So she believed that, you know, the, the toxicity is going to be interneuron. The GABAergic neuron is very important. And then the neural activity, especially the FOE and an ABET are combined together. But I think that's kind of you know, somewhat kind of a new trend in the Alzheimer's research because I think we initially thought that excitatory neuron, like a glutamatergic neuron or cardiac neuron, that type of neuron is the more vulnerable in the, that terms of neurotoxicity in Alzheimer's disease in the hippocampal area and the cortical area. So interneuron or governing neuron is kind of you know not very well studied about it. But I think now we got more attention in that part of the neuron also affected by that or your toxicity yeah. or you know synaptic toxicity in the Alzheimer's disease. So I think it's going to be very interesting question. But I think that was a very interesting question for central question in Alzheimer's disease because of selective neurodegeneration is yes. the main part of you know your pathology. But, but no one asked that question, although I guess mm -hmm. it was addressable. Like, are there different neurotransmitters and the neurons that are affected? I just know people that wrote about it but never did any experimental work. It has not been, yes, but uh, but it's true that the most likely differences, and we're talking about neurons, about astrocytes, I was just another, say. <laughs> yeah. which are also been showing there is problems with them too in the disease, and they also are part of uh, this so-called tripartite synapse, uh, etc. So they play a role also in the summit disease. And they respond to amyloid also, and yes, in a different think, way. And tau. I think it might be a missed opportunity, I mean, to study the cell type vulnerability. So if you say you're in the pyramidal cell layer and some cells are affected and some aren't, and you think, well, all the cells in the pyramidal cell layer are the same, but of course they're not. No, they're not. Uh, <laughs> so they're not. And also there's another, that you're talking about different cells in Ibizuri, but there are also differences in relevance between CA1, CA3, and Delta gyrus, mm -hmm. in which there are papers being published there that for sure CA1 is involved <coughs> but in CA3, 
uh, or whether Dentagerus is and CA3 is not, or maybe it's actually the other way, maybe Dentagerus is not and CA3 is, but then CA3 receives input from both Dentagerus and from the entorana cortex directly, so maybe one uh, is involved and the other one is not involved, so there's many layers of complexity in which... And if it's actually propagating from one neuron to another, there right. should be some kind of directionality in the circuit that yes. could be and there is, seen. and there is, and people see it. For all the experiment of spreading for entorana cortex, uh, they, they use mouse models that uh, have uh, uh, genetically modified to start producing uh, tau, also, bet I should say people don't. I'm sure this light today uh, don't like to talk about a bet, or they don't like. Not that they don't like. They don't talk about <laughs> it. Uh, uh, but anyway, the two of them, you have a mouse. They start making a tower a beta from entorana course, and you see spreading of the disease elsewhere. I mean, uh, so basically, you start from the where hippocampus is downstream. Yes, and we have performed an experiment in which. Not published yet, together with the uh, colleagues of mine in uh, Pisa and in Milan, in which actually, if you take extracellular vesicles and uh, that are treated with the bed amyloid, and uh, extracellular vesicles derived from microglia, okay, and uh, you take this microglia, you treat the microglia with bed amyloid, and then you you make your extracellular vesicle. Then you take this extracellular vesicle, you infuse them into entorhinal cortex, right? and uh, in, what you see immediately is an impairment of synaptic plasticity in the area where you, in the entorhinal cortex, where you are infusing them. Then, uh, if you wait 24 hours, uh, you will see an impairment of synaptic plasticity of LTP at the dentagyrus, the downstream synapse, meaning that take this time for the extracellular vesicle to, uh, to move from the site of injection entorhinal cortex along the axon and to reach the synapse <coughs> down there. And uh, if you do the same experiment with bed amyloid, not with extracellular vesicle, you do not get the spreading of uh, uh, the, uh, the synaptic plasticity impairment. You get impairment of LTP in the area of the injection of the bed amyloid, but not uh, 24 hours would be normal, the LTP downstream. So th there is spreading through of these things, then so how at least that partly answers my question because it doesn't go retrogradely from the up the mm. axons that project into interrotal cortex, right. it goes in the anterograde direction down yes. the axons that leave yeah, the anterograde yeah, yeah, cortex. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there must be a great backstory for that experiment because why in the world did they pick vesicles made in microglia and treated yeah. it down? <laughs> I'd love to know the whole reason for designing that experiment way, that way, but it must be based on the idea that microglia are... Uh, uh, it is based on uh, primary of the work of this colleague in Milan called uh, she's Claudia Verderio and lab. Uh, they were working a lot with this extracellular vesicle and microglia in normal conditions, and then uh, they had some diseases, and then they end up publishing a paper in which, in primary culture, they were seeing that this extracellular vesicle derived from the microglia were toxic to synaptic markers, reducing them, yeah. etc. 
and then, uh, and then uh, the, the lab was not expert in Alzheimer's disease, but was expert in extracellular vesicle, and then talking with the, another colleague of mine in Pisa, who was ex, used to be also in my lab, and now he's a PI there, Nicole Aurelia is his name, um, he, you know, we know very well that the role of uh, connectivity in Alzheimer's disease, ultra-connectivity, being electrophysiologist, you look at connectivity, you don't look at spreading, but it's a very similar thing. Uh, and how measure this hypothesis of change in network activity and connectivity. So we ask the question, if it does, if you do this extra vesicle, you also see this lab was observing very interestingly that if you take, they had this very cool technique which is called optical tweezer. So with this optical tweezer, you can take a single extracellular vesicle, mm -hmm. you place on the process on your axon there on the, under the microscope. You finally place there. And they were observing this vesicle were walking along the axon. Okay? And we're going, they were going, some of them were going also to the cell body. They're, still, they're still on the outside. But From the outside. Out. Normal people think that the extracellulars yeah. enter in and then they move. Mm -hmm. But instead, what they observe is that they, from just like balls sliding on top of this, the processes, and they go downstream. So you see all of this, then you know that the connectivity is altering the disease. And uh, you, like we do, colleague discuss. Let's see whether uh, whether it is the reason for changing the connectivity of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, and uh, you did the experiment and the report the result I just mentioned before. I mean, that's, that's a great example of how things really happen. I mean, it's yeah. really the connectivity among scientists that yeah, exactly. the experiment rather than the brain. And, unfortunately, <laughs> when we got sick, then the connectivity <laughs> breaks and not, not discover how <laughs> good. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just curious if there's a if uh, inoculating uh, a mouse with these soluble oligomers is a model for Alzheimer's. Like, what's the time frame that it would take for this to sort of spread throughout the the animal's brain? Ah, to spread, uh, that would take months. It's not easy uh, to affect the the area where uh, that you're investigating. Uh, it's the effect is immediate, twenty minutes. So if you take a bed oligomers, so you take tau oligomers and infuse directly into the hippocampus, after 20 minutes or 15 minutes even, you see an impairment of memory or you see an impairment of LTP. It's immediate. The spread is, is different. The spread takes months for these models to see spreading of this protein. It's much slower, which could in a way mimic what happened in the disease. It's a very subtle disease, not really... Uh, that uh, it takes a long, long, long time to occur, probably because the spreading processes is uh, is, uh, is 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 affected. But there was this other aspect that I was speaking today that uh, I think it's very important. I was mentioning this thing about this amyloid cascade hypothesis, why you cannot confirm. There is a key experiment we have performed that. Uh, uh, you know, that uh, makes me thinking that uh, this uh, amyloid cascade is not really appropriate. And this is the experiment in which when you, we su suppress tau, and uh, use tau knockout animals, we suppress tau, and then we uh, treat the animals with oligomers or beta amyloid, we do not see an impairment of long-term memory or late LTP. We do not see that. Uh, which is just uh, <coughs> different than, uh, which is just uh, different what you would uh, 
expect if the hypothesis of amyloid cascade in which there is first a repeated again, first beta amyloid, then uh, that trigger tau, and then tau causes the disease. If, <clears throat> according to this result, it's not, uh, the two things cannot be placed in series. What we have found is that only short-term plasticity or short-term memory are protected by suppressing tau. But long-term plasticity, long-term memory are not protected by tau suppression. The, the consequence of that is that actually it is, uh, uh, <coughs> it, 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 they are not in series, but they should be in parallel. Together with that experiment that I, I spoke about before, the one where we use a very low doses of the two oligomers, uh, the beta oligomers and tau oligomers, that per se were not cap are not capable of impairing LTP and memory. The combination of the two, they impair LTP and memory. And uh, so, it's again, combined with that, make me think that the two of them are not placed in uh, series. The consequence would be that Therapy also against a beta alone or tau alone would not function because still there is the other one that is toxic because you cut clearly only only one so it's it's unlikely that therapy against tau or therapy against a beta reducing a beta level tau levels with will uh, be uh, beneficial to this uh, to this disease. Instead, we do think they are in parallel and we have published interesting results in which we see that downstream of them there will be this APP, the amyloid percussion protein itself, that from which a beta is made, that is necessary for both a beta and tau to be uh, uh, toxic to synaptic function and uh, or impair, impair LTP and memory. Is there any reason to think that, that there are only these two? Perhaps there are more. I mean, these, these two we've... Yeah, we do not... Uh, uh, ah, are the protein adjacent to a beta and tau? Well, yes, this is a, we have to be always being open-minded towards our uh, towards science. So I cannot exclude at the moment in Alzheimer's there are other proteins that oligomerize and they are responsible for other diseases. Alpha synuclein is very much associated with Parkinson's disease. And there are other amyloid proteins that are linked with the different neurodegenerative disorders. Exactly. Yeah. So this is yeah. sort of the different trajectories that are produced by these but it's super interesting to imagine exactly, that the yes. initial process is somewhat could be somewhat similar. Yes, yes, um, yes, yeah, yeah. What do you think the changes are in the synapse? Are there structural changes or is it functional changes or is it both? I think it's both. It has to be both. I think at the beginning they are functional, but eventually functional should be translated into into structural changes because yeah. And what do you think the structural changes are? You know, there's the one is synaptophysin, but do you have more specific ideas? About structural changes. Well, you know, spine I mean, are there, lost. are there reduced? Spine are lost. Presynaptic terminal are uh, reduced. So there is less, I mean, uh, those are for sure structural changes. Those are macroscopic. Mm -hmm. For a certain point of microscopic. Most likely beneath that, there is additional molecular changes. So do you think there's a reduction in synapses or is there a functional change of the same number of synapses? I think at first there is a functional change and then there is a reduction of synapses. First synapse is sick and then dies.
And your research clearly demonstrates that it's going to be limited in the presynaptic, not the postsynaptic. Uh, right? What we do see that the presynaptic uh, is affected before the postsynaptic. Also, oh, eventually, the, it's going to be the postsynaptic that degeneration is going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the synapse is made from both sides. Mm -hmm. So to mm -hmm. think that one goes alone, uh, it's almost. Uh, uh, doesn't make that much sense, but we do find that the presynaptic side is uh, affected before. You mean in the sense of less synaptic vesicles or how they're organized? Um, I, I think uh, in terms of uh, release, there is changes in the vesicle cycling mechanisms that uh, lead to increase in release of neurotransmitter at the very beginning. Increase? Increase, yes. Yeah. Yeah. At the very beginning, so <clears throat> so it, the regulation of the the vesicle cycling that really it's so I don't know whether there is less reserved pool, readily receivable mm -hmm. pool for people who believe in these two pools. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to judge that. I know that there is some disagreement there also, but there is for sure change there. It would be very interesting to look at uh, at uh, what happens at that level. Or without mentioning also the intervention of the cytoskeleton that regulates the mobilization of these vesicles and protein important for the cytoskeleton, which are also very important that some of them, uh, for its actin, etc., they stabilize mm -hmm. uh, the, the terminal and play an important role. So perhaps I have an, an hypothesis that I think it's actin that it could be regular, it could be kind of, uh, normally would work as a break to the synapse. And if this break is lifted because uh, you get some signal epigenetic from some uh, gene coming from the center, and then it's removed, and, uh, and then it goes. But it's a hypothesis. You're talking about hypothesis. Well, if you change I calcium levels, you would change actin levels. Yes, yeah. It can happen then. So. It's, all, it's very fascinating, and there is a lot there could be discovered. And especially if we move outside the bed and town. <laughs> That's a great note to end on. Yeah. And uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, not that they are not important. Don't misunderstand me. But, yes. Thank you, Otavio Rancho. You're this welcome. This is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. You're welcome.